the thing you have to prove, and this is where I think Avis was brilliant, is you have to prove you're working harder. You have to prove that it's fair that the underdog is going to win. Your Marketing Moment is about those significant events or moments in time that transform a career or business and how you too can create a marketing moment of your own. John Nee, president of Act One Partners, a marketing strategy and experiential firm, interviews business leaders about their marketing moments and covers significant marketing moments in history and their impact on how we do business today. Short and usually focused on a single event, your marketing moment takes just a moment of your day, but can ultimately prove momentous for your own career or business. Welcome to Your Marketing Moment. I'm John Nee, your host of the podcast. Today's episode is the format in which we analyze a significant marketing moment from the last 50 years of American business. On a recent podcast, we discussed Apple's 1984 Super Bowl ad. This episode is about Avis's We're Number Two, or We Try Harder advertising campaign. Joining me today is Jessa Barnes. Jessa is the Director of Brand Strategy with R West, a full-service marketing and branding agency with offices in New York, Portland, Oregon, and Amsterdam. Jessa's expertise and insights help challenger brands compete with the big guys, and not just by trying harder. Welcome, Jessa. Thanks, John. I like what you did there. That was good. You like that little addition? <laughs> so... Why is Avis's We're Number Two or We Try Harder campaign a marketing moment? A few reasons why it made our list. Number one, it established truth in advertising. It turned the table on the notion that a company or a product always had to tout its leadership position. Number two, it served as the pioneer of what we now call the underdog, sometimes known as the challenger brand, and highlighted the benefits of the lemonade strategy turning something negative and making it into a positive. Like when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. And third, it was a breakthrough marketing moment for women in the field of advertising during the mad men era of the industry. What we like to do here on Your Marketing Moment is to cover the backstory first. So this rivalry between Avis and Hertz dates back to the mid-1940s. Hertz was the first rental car company but when Air Force officer Warren Avis traveled, he spotted an unexploited niche in the rental car market. His killer idea was to put cars at the airports. See, at the time, most rental lots, including Hertz's, were located in downtowns. Warren Avis thought he could cater to this growing market of business travelers who wished to fly into cities, drive to their meetings, and then fly out the same day. So, in 1946, he started the company with just three cars at a small airport in Michigan. And for the next 15 years, Hertz continued to be number one while Avis grew their business. But by the early 1960s, Avis was losing money and Hertz was outspending Avis in advertising five to one. So the new president of Avis at the time called Bill Bernbach, the creative director of advertising firm Doyle, Dane, Bernbach, also known as DDB, and told him they needed to get five times the impact for their advertising dollar. Bernbach said his agency could do that, but the team at Avis needed to know a few things. First of all, Bernbach said, quote, we don't take any crap from our clients 
We don't allow clients to push us around and tell us what to do. The second rule, Bernbach told Davis, was you need to run every ad where we tell you to run it. And then lastly, Bernbach told Davis, you don't change even so much as a comma in our work. The Avis president had an interesting reaction. He said they wanted Bernbach's agency even more after that. He felt that anyone who talked that way had confidence, and Avis needed confidence more than anything. So talk about a courageous advertising agency and a firm who certainly uh, backed up what they said. Jessa, with your perspective on the advertising agency industry and advertising and marketing in general, any thoughts on the, uh, the backstory? So many thoughts. <laughs> Where do you so, start? So many thoughts. You know, I think it's, it's just obviously as a huge fan of Mad Men, like I go right back to, to my favorite Mad Men episodes and I can just recreate the whole scene in my head. And it's just so funny to think about how, how times have changed in so many ways since then. You know, I think obviously the industry at the time was, to, to say it was male dominated is, is you know, an understatement. I, an understatement. <laughs> and, you know, it's, there's part of me that's so jealous of, you know, that, that ability to sort of walk in the room and be the experts and, and have that, to be able to hold court like that, you know, it just doesn't happen like that anymore. The, the, I think about, you know, the, the comment about don't change a comma, you, you know, in the copy right. yeah. where you have AI writing copy now. And it's, right. it's... Not to mention the legal department. Not to mention the legal department <laughs> and compliance and everyone thinks they're a copywriter and from... There, there really is this feeling and, and there's a positive and a negative side to it, I think, that there, there is no expertise anymore in anything. And I think that's, that's a little dangerous. Yeah, so, it's almost as if as as the expertise, as the, the discipline has become more specialized and more of a science, frankly. Right. Because we know more how advertising can affect an audience and can affect a consumer at a psychological and scientific level. In spite of that, it seems more people consider themselves experts and, and more and, and, and an authority mm -hmm. and, and just naturally have the expertise that they know as well as anybody else what, what works. Right. And one of the biggest, I think, casualties of that is creativity and sort of the, the, the lack of um, importance and reverence we give creativity now in terms of, you know, coming at a problem in a way that's unexpected, that's, you know, revolutionary, maybe too strong of a term, but human and smart. And I think when it becomes, like you said, like a science, you know, like let's watch where the eyeballs go and let's, you know, heat map everything. And it, you know, you sort of lose that human, that thing that makes us human, which is, yeah. you know, that, that, that human connection. Our brains love a surprise. And I also, I was laughing about the, you know, the, the backstory about the car, the, the people getting to the airport driving to a meeting, coming back. All I could, I could literally smell the cigarette smoke. <laughs> <laughs> 1960s. 
the 1960s cars. You know, it's bad enough when you rent a car now, you can never get a car that doesn't smell like smoke. That's that's the car rental that I want is the one that guarantees this car will be smoke free. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. I'll pay a premium for that. And in so many of those early Avis ads, they talk about how the ashtrays will mm-hmm. always be clean. Right, uh, right. Again, a, a real anachronism from, from what, the lives we live lead, uh, today. <sighs> so well, funny. Well, let's dig a little deeper into this. And what followed after that conversation was a seminal moment in marketing creativity and advertising audacity. I think audacity is a, maybe a great way to, to characterize the, um, the exchange so far. And Avis and DDB were able to contextualize the many ways which being number two made them better than being number one. And it was Paula Green, an advertising executive at DDB, a woman working in this male-dominated advertising industry who came up with the slogan for Avis car rentals that would be used for over 50 years. And that was, we try harder. I was thinking about that stat, the 50 years stat. And I was thinking, gosh, what if advertising was like the music industry or or sitcoms where you get paid residuals <laughs> paula paula would have been yeah. set for life in her right. every generation after paula just imagine the royalties off of that amazing so there were like i mentioned there were three main themes that came out of this marketing moment and the first was the underdog again this this campaign really established what is now known as the underdog brand biography, which chronicles brand origin, uh, life experiences, and evolution over time in a selectively constructed story. And this particular one was based on the premise that they were not the top dogs uh, in the industry, but a number two, and that when you're a challenger brand, you have to constantly try harder for every customer, and you can't afford to offer anything less than great customer service. Generally speaking, the underdog brand often includes three key elements and two dimensions. The first element is humble beginnings, followed by hopes and dreams, and then lastly, noble strategies against the adversary. And the dimensions are an external disadvantage and combined with passion and determination. And the Avis ads never called out Hertz by name, but obviously the accusations were implicit. So, Jessa, from your experience, in working with many challenger brands or underdog brands, can you speak to the to these elements and, and the dimensions and how they how they work today? Has anything changed much, or are they still still the the, the core elements and core dimensions of the of the underdog or uh, challenger brand companies? You have to look at advertising within the the context or the framework of the the era in which it lives. And, and I think that those are, that's something that really strikes me about this story is, you know, it was so unheard of at the time for a brand to kind of show its weakness, show its hand to everyone. And if you think about that in context of the time, it's the early sixties, we're in the cold war. We are, you know, we're in the space race and we are, um, obviously still coming out the victors in World War II, and it, it was all about winning, right? That's right. Yeah, there and, were some, some who even called the ad campaign un-American. Right. So, you know, you fast forward to 2023, and I almost think the script has flipped, where there's something negative about being the big guy and about winning being looked at as 
dominating or exactly. keeping the little guy down or, right. you know, so <laughs> it is reverse. I mean, there are some, some brands who are number one, who are trying to somehow deliver that underdog persona. Right. Exactly. You know the benefit in the marketplace of being the underdog, yet they're the dominating. Exactly. And, you know, and the human psyche is so interesting because there are studies that show if you give a scenario to someone, they're, they're going to choose the underdog 70 to 80% of the time. Usually if, if you say, okay, well, there's this sports team and, you know, here's the, here's the scenario, which, which team are you rooting for? They're going to root for the underdog or there's these come this chocolate company and this company, you know, is going against these big companies, which, which chocolate are you more likely to buy? They, they choose the little company. But I think that it's really interesting when you go back to sort of that American context is the thing you have to prove. And this is where I think Avis was, you know, brilliant is you have to prove you're working harder. You have to prove that it's fair that the underdog is going to win because we all have this ingrained, you know, thing beaten into us as little American babies. (laughs) (laughs) You have to work hard to get your pennies. And um, if you don't, you don't deserve to win. Yeah, so it's a, it's a key element of the American dream is that that a hundred percent, and you can you can get what you want, and that's that all leads into actually the the second takeaway: the, the, this truth in advertising. And you know, you've already hit on some of that. Just thinking about the the era of the early nineteen sixties coming mm-hmm. out of the Cold War, but the truth was that Avis was acknowledging that they weren't the biggest, and, right? And and acknowledging that any sort of brand weakness at the time was unheard of on Madison Avenue. I mean, can you imagine the boardroom, right? When this agency came in and said, we're going to tout that we're number two. <laughs> and how, do, how well do you think, do you think that went over? Um, we already talked a little bit about how, how it's uh, un-American. Um, but, you know, at the same time, how, how far can you go with something like that? <laughs> can you just say, you know, we're, num- we're number 12? Um, yeah. Or can, can, does it only go as We're well not as trying hard enough. Right. <laughs> and, and, uh, and does the industry matter, right? Can you be number two in airline safety? <laughs> right? Hospital care. That's right. Uh, yeah. That's right. It's, it's, and, and so where does the, um, you know, where does the, where's the line in that, uh, and you know, as I said, it's um, most ad agencies at the time considered it disastrous because it was such a break in the norm. You know, and and, and DDB in the future after this became known as as the, the, for these campaigns and for working with clients who who were the underdog. Right. And so, you know, it, it hit on a number of different spaces. Right. It hit on uh, the truth in advertising, of course, but then it also, I think, um, established this this underdog persona and the benefits of it. Yeah. And it, I think it is, um, I mean, obviously it is industry relevant. Uh, and, and I think a lot, you know, I think one of the industries it's interesting to look at it is in the sports industry because, you know, you always, if you're a sports company, you always have to have this winning mindset, right? You know, nobody, nobody wants to be a loser at sports. There's that, uh, phenomenon they have the silver medalist phenomenon where um, if you look at photos of silver medalists, they're always the most miserable on the podium because they were the ones that 
almost got it, but they didn't. And so you see the gold medalist smiling and the bronze medalist smiling and the silver medalist looks miserable. I think that, you know, that's that it's all about our perception of if we're winning or losing, not if we're actually winning or losing. Right. Um, Yeah. That's a, that's a good point. I mean, it's a lot of importance placed on sports and recreation in our society, obviously. And if we're out there participating or if we're rooting for a team, why not root for the winning team or why not want to be number one and, and to take every advantage that you can to, to be number one and to, to be that winner. Right. Yeah. So if I'm going to choose a shoe, you know, do I, do I want to choose a shoe from a company that's saying they're number two? Yeah. I don't want to be the silver medalist. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the last element of this is of course the role that women played in this uh, marketing moment. And at the risk of ascribing too much to the dynamics of the 1960s and gender roles, but perhaps it is no coincidence that Paula Green, uh, the woman who devised the campaign, uh, was a woman and 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 touted the um, uh, and and wrote the slogan of trying harder. And it was revolutionary because, of course, she was a woman in a man's industry. But she also said later in interviews that it went against the notion that you had to brag. Right, which is also sort of a stereotypical female-male dynamic, right? Like when a, when, a, when a man brags, he's confident. When a woman brags, she thinks too highly of herself. A <laughs> <laughs> number of words come to mind is what uh-huh. um, people may, may ascribe yes. to that. And we've yes. been books and uh, written about it. And of course, a lot of attention has been given to that dynamic right. over the last you know, 10 to 20 years. As um, as women have played a greater role in in our workforce and and in our economy, but again, this was one of those I think significant moments in the industry uh, for women, and something that maybe had, has never gone back. You know, we we obviously we we <coughs> we look at the Mad Men era, um, and uh, it's um, been popularized, of course, through. TV and, and other medium and, and entertainment, but it was real then. And and now it's um, some people like yourself who are 20 years in the uh, industry and successful and um, and a leader uh, for your for your company. Yeah, we still. I mean, I would say we still don't see representation on the creative side with for women in in creative roles um, like we should. I mean. We, the women definitely have um, are represented, I think, in other departments um, very strongly. But I, I, you know, it's still finding a female copywriter. Um, obviously, it's much easier today than it was in 1966 or 64. But um, it's still there's still, there's work, still work to do, and um, I can only imagine what Paula Green's experience was like, I mean, I, I'm sure the writers of Mad Men modeled her with Peggy's character. I'm sure she wasn't able to present her own work much of the time. Um, I'm sure she did try harder. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure that that line was very personal to her. Definitely. And it's interesting if you look at the original print campaign, because they use a female face on the original print campaign as well. So... It was definitely groundbreaking, I think, in a, in a number of ways. Um, and 
as in all representation in the advertising industry, there's, there's still a long way to go. Um, right. Especially if you look at creative roles for women of color in the industry, there is a long, long way to go. Well, something else we like to do here on the podcast is to look at the results. So we looked at the backstory, we unpacked the elements of the, um, of the marketing moment, but let's, let's look at the results for a bit. So within a year after the campaign, Avis went from losing three, over $3 million a year to earning over a million dollars. The first time it had been profitable in more than a decade. And the second year profit jumped 150%. And the third year it doubled again. So obviously, whatever they were doing with the advertising was working. From a revenue perspective, Avis's sales rose from a 10% annual increase to a 35% annual increase. And while Hertz's market share dropped from 61% to 49%, the market share for Avis grew from 29% to 36%. Four years after the ads uh, began, Hertz finally blinked and acknowledged that they had a worthy rival. They sh- fired their ad agency at the time and came out with their own print ad. Because <laughs> it's always the ad agency's fault. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. Blame it on the, uh, on the agency. <laughs> Some of the s- sample ads read, for years, Avis has been telling you Hertz is number one. Now we're going to tell you why. Number two says he tries harder than who? And lastly, Hertz has a competitor who says he's only number two. That's hard to argue with. Uh, The ads were immediately effective from Hertz. Uh, Their market share gap stabilized in the late 1960s, settling in at a steady 48% to 35%. And then Hertz came out with the We're Number One campaign uh, and slogan, and it was accompanied by a raised index finger. And that raised index finger soon became a giant foam raised index finger that you see at a lot of sporting events that fans are waving in the crowds. That blocks your view at every sporting event. <laughs> <laughs> that eight-year-old kid that you just want to thanks Hertz behind you. <laughs> so Avis never did catch up to Hertz. Again, more more of the results and, and where we are today. Instead, the enter- enterprise uh, brand uh, passed them both. Because Hertz and Avis had focused so fiercely on the airport market, they became vulnerable first when 9-11 hit and, and airport travel decreased or airline travel decreased. And then the Great Recession also had an effect on the air industry and air travel, uh, particularly for businesses. And that meant fewer air travel customers and ultimately fewer rental car uh, customers, at least from the airports. With Enterprise as number one, Hertz is number two these days, and Avis still lags in third place. And just a few years ago, Avis dropped the We Try Harder tagline from its ads. Uh, Avis's legacy may be that they had one of the best and most memorable print campaigns in history. Uh, That's not too bad as a legacy, even though they never did become number one and edge out Hertz. So again, why is it a marketing moment? We have a, a few criteria here that we use on the podcast to define a marketing moment. Uh, Number one, that it was transformational. And I think when you look at the uh, rental car industry and the competitiveness between these two brands, uh, it was um, obviously a significant marketing moment for, for the industry. And then also for the marketing industry and women, like we talked about before. 
We also consider a marketing moment to be memorable. And here we are 50 years plus later, still talking about it. We also have a criteria that the marketing moment needs to be unique. And uh, this definitely fits into that uh, category. It ushered in the underdog persona, like we talked about in the marketplace, and then also this truth in advertising when others were, um, were shying away from that and only talking about their leadership position. Another element for a marketing moment is that it has to be high stakes. And although uh, this is not a life or death <laughs> situation, <laughs> uh, I have to admit that when I do rent a car, and it isn't often as, as I used to, and we'll talk about that in a minute, there's a lot of dependency that we place on that rental car, whether yeah. it's to go to a business meeting and that car has to work, it has to be full, filled with gas, has to get us there uh, safely and on time. And just imagine the dependency that we have for rental cars when we have a family vacation. Uh, the last thing we want are car problems when we're far away from home and we've invested a lot of money and time into a family vacation. So although, the, again, the stakes aren't life or death, uh, there's still a pretty high dependency on, on a successful experience. And then lastly, the marketing moment has to be relevant. And although there are still rental car companies and Avis and Hertz and Enterprise are still with us today, I have to admit that with ride-sharing services like Uber and Lyft, the use, at least personally, the use of rental cars is not as much as it used to be. That's true. And there is also, you know, um, beyond ride share, there's car share services that I've used a couple times now, That's like Toro. Yeah, and those experience, I mean, I, if I were a rental car company, I would be pretty worried about those experiences because they are pretty good. <laughs> at least in my experience. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's nothing worse than standing in line once you, you know, you get to where you're going and then you're standing, you have to stand in another line for your car. And I, I don't know how they figure out the ratio of humans, humans to humans in the, in those rental car places. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but right. It, it, it never seems to be an efficient process, even with some of the supposedly fast lanes. And with some of these ride, these car share companies, you know, they, they bring the car right to the lot you're coming out of and you have a picture of where it is. You hop in, you drive away, you drive it back to that spot. You, you know, when you're done and you go back into the, it's, it's pretty slick. Yeah, and well, guess what? The cars didn't smell like smoke. <laughs> <laughs> Always a benefit. Yes. Well, something else we like to do here on the podcast is explore if there were any changes that we think could have been made or how would this ad or this campaign play differently in today's world. So any thoughts on things that would have been different if it were redone or if it were done today? Well, first of all, if it was done today, it wouldn't have been to print campaign. <laughs> <laughs> all digital um, right? it would be all yes it would be coming across your Facebook feed or your um, mobile Instagram phone yes <laughs> gosh you know that's the first thing you know the first thing I think of when when you were doing the backstory is when he said we're going to run this you know you're going to agree to exactly where we say to run this ad 
that would be completely different today because the media landscape is so fragmented and most of the time you have someone completely different placing the media than you have creating the creative and it's it's not um one machine so um but at the same time with all the data that we can now collect from digital experiences we can probably have a little bit more confidence both in in ourselves and where we place it but then also in defending those decisions with with the client right and it would be catered to those you know heavy users of rental cars who are in the market for them most of the time and um hyper targeted for sure right right well that wraps up this episode of your marketing moment special thanks to jessa barnes for joining us today it's always fun chatting with you about marketing and business thanks john great to see you had a great time Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Your Marketing Moment, where we explore famous marketing moments in business as well as significant marketing moments of our guests in order to learn how we can all create marketing moments of our own. Connect with us on LinkedIn or Instagram at Your Marketing Moment and select the subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. So long and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Your Marketing Moment. This is a production of Act One Partners, a marketing strategy and experiential firm that helps companies elevate and transform their business by knowing their market, telling their story, and living their brand. Be sure to visit our website, actonepartners.com forward slash your marketing moment, and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts.